Well, if you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open with me to Genesis and to chapter 44 as we continue our studies in the book of Genesis this evening. We had a little bit of a break from Genesis last Sunday evening, but we're picking up again uh, chapter 44. As we know, Genesis, these can be long chapters, uh, but it's well worth having your Bible open and following along with us. So Genesis 44, beginning to read at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then he, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to the steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When he went back to your servants, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. 
If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Now, if you have a Bible, please open there at Genesis 44. And we will pray, asking God to lead us. Lord, thank you for uh, this, your word. And we pray that we will be humble before it, that your spirit might apply your word to our hearts, and uh, that we will be indeed a transformed people being continually transformed. Lead us, we pray, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see in the Joseph narrative in the book of Genesis is God's sovereignty on one hand and his providential care on the other hand, both in action, over and over and over again. His sovereignty and his care. And that's exactly, of course, what you see in your life and what I see in my life. But what we see is God working, working, working in the hearts and minds of Joseph and his brothers. And of course, all of it, as we thought back many a time when we were looking at Abraham, all of it was to protect his plan and his purposes and ultimately his people. So as we come now to chapter 44, we're about 20 years after the events of chapter 37 where the Joseph narrative began. 20 years have passed. 20 years as God is working in the life of Joseph in and through him in Egypt, but also 20 years of God at work in the consciences of his brothers back in Canaan. Now, in a sense, God brought them together, Joseph and the brothers. 20 years have passed. A lot has happened And of course, 20 years may seem to you a long, long time. Some of you haven't even been on the earth for 20 years. Uh, Some of you have had too many 20 years. But 20 years is a long time. But what we've got to remember, of course, is God is not controlled or limited by time or space. I mean, he is timeless. Time means nothing to God. So whether it's Egypt or in Canaan as far as space is concerned, or whether it's 20 minutes or 20 years, it makes no difference. God is sovereign, and he is caring, and he is extremely patient. And we're going to see that again tonight. 
In chapter 42, as Kent Hughes says, God graced the brothers with guilt, fear, and sorrow. Grace given to the brothers in the form of guilt, fear, and sorrow. Grace because, of course, they knew they were guilty. Grace because their fear was a godly fear. Grace because they mourned over their sin. This was all in chapter 42. Chapter 43, through Joseph, the brothers received grace upon grace. The provision of free food, and even they were beginning to have a sense of peace in their hearts and minds. Now, as we come to chapter 44, we see the culmination of all God's goodness and grace to them. The word I thought about this week was transformation. That's what we see in chapter 44. Transformation, the radical change through God's good grace. And we need... As we sit here looking back on the story, we need to understand how the transformation was formed and how it was evidenced. So what caused the transformation and how was it revealed in the lives of these brothers? And it involves many things. It involves repentance. We're going to see that. Turning uh, from sin, acknowledging turning from sin. It involves intercession as the brothers plead for the safety of Benjamin. It involves sacrifice where they deny themselves, particularly Judah, as he speaks on behalf of the brothers, prepared to take his brother's place. So we're seeing transformation in repentance, intercession, sacrifice. This is transformation. It's also the evidence of transformation. This is the work of grace, the work of the gospel. And as we go through this tonight, we've got to be asking ourselves, you know, have I been transformed? Am I being transformed? I mean, have I been saved? Am I being changed? Because we can be certain of at least two things tonight. God longs to save us. God longs to change us. This is transformation. And we see it in the lives of these brothers the covenant people of God in chapter 44. I trust you see it in me and I see it in you. Transformation. God leads and uses Joseph to recreate the situation of Genesis 37. A test. The same situation where they sold Joseph into slavery and abandoned Joseph, they, Joseph set it up again. Would they do the same to Benjamin? I mean, would they abandon their youngest brother, Benjamin? Had they been changed in the 20 years? There was evidence in 42 and in chapter 43, but was this change real? Were they truly transformed? And would they show the evidence of it? When, when put to the test, <clears throat> what would they do? So let's go to the text. And the, our first um, heading is, um, um, is basically transformation. It's not terribly creative. So G Joseph created this test. Remember, the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph. <clears throat> but his, 
his thinking was this. Do, do they really love Benjamin? Do they really love the dad the way they claim to love their dad? Or are they still self-absorbed, self-centered, self-focused? So let's go down to the verses very, very quickly. I'm not going to read them all because we've already heard them, but keep your eye on it. Verse 1, again, they get free grain and their money back. Verse 2, the test, but plant my silver cup in Benjamin's sack. That's the command. It's a setup, you can see. Because this cup would have been valuable in itself, made out of silver, but in many ways it was a, a status symbol, just like the, the Pharaoh would have worn a kind of crown, then the, the prime minister, Joseph, would have used a cup, a silver cup. So on their way they got, notice verse 3, at morning dawn the men sent, were sent on their way with their donkeys. Three-week journey lies ahead, a long, long journey by donkey. But verse 4, they were barely out of the town and immediately they were chased and charged with stealing the silver cup of the prime minister. Verse 5 and 6, of course, we see that this is the test, the scheme. Benjamin had not stolen the cup. I mean, they say that again and again. But it was a way for Joseph to get to the sin issue in the lives of his brothers. Testing to see, were they repentant or not? Were they transformed or not? Guilt had been burning in uh, their hearts for 20 years, but had never really been confessed, never really been forgiven. The issue had never been dealt with. And so Joseph says, I, I'm going I'm to keep it, you guys, until this issue is dealt with. Verses 7 to 9, I think it's worth reading those verses. But they said to him, that's the brothers, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. That's the first time. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants, that's the, the, uh, the brothers, is found to have it, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. The, the, the brothers were so confident of their innocence, that they volunteer an extreme punishment to themselves. Kill the guilty one, and the rest of us will become your slaves. Yeah, we're talking about pretty extreme punishment here, aren't we? The steward, okay, softens the punishment, verse 10. Uh, he lowers the terms very well then. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free of blame. And verse 11, you kind of get the impression, would you hurry up? We're wasting our time here. Search and see if you can find the silver cup. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Because as far as they were concerned, there was no stolen goods aboard. But lo and behold, verse 12, the shock and the horror. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Caught. And the response is shock and horror and sorrow. Verse 13, at this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. They ripped their clothes as a sign of, of lament and horror. Do you remember who tore his clothes when Joseph was reported to have died. Do you remember who did that? 
Jacob, dad, in a public act of sorrow. Now it's all the boys do this. They're devastated. They're crushed. And in a sense, are we seeing the first sign of acknowledgement of their sin? Perhaps. But verse 14, they head back to Egypt. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Let's pause for a moment there. Do you see how God works with his people? If there is unconfessed and unrepentant sin in our lives, he will challenge us. He will. He will awaken our conscience. He will stir us, even if it's 20 years ago. And often he will use this kind of trial, this kind of test, this kind of thing that pushes us to the limit. Verse 14, imagine the brothers bowing before Joseph. Could you have ever thought that that would have happened? And of course, it was the fulfillment of the dream that Joseph had back in chapter 37. It's part of God's sovereign plan. And in verse 15, we have this crucial question that we're going to return to in a few moments' time. What is this you have done? Joseph, inspired by the Holy Spirit, asks this key question. But what we've got to remember is that it's the fear of God. The fear of God was stirring within them, and their consciences were being aroused and awakened. And in verse 16, particularly the the middle section there, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the the one who was found to have the cup. We've been found out, and we're guilty. God has found us out. Now, in many ways, Joseph is arguing from the, the lesser to the greater. I think this is important to, to state. He, he, it started with a silver cup, but it escalated into the sins of the past 20 years before. Do you see that? In fact, it was no longer, it never really was an issue of the silver cup. It was about their collective, collective sin. 20 years before when they sold their brother and abandoned him and lied about it. And Joseph saying, I wonder, are they going to do the same to Benjamin right now? And so these two things are very important. What is this you have done? And they say, God has uncovered our guilt. Now these guys realize God saw it all. And God knew it all. And in these moments, we see, them, we see these guys being changed. We, all of us, are your slaves. Not just Benjamin, verse 16. We are, we are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. And in those moments, Joseph could see and understand that there was evidence of transformation They were passing the test. They were changed men. But back to that question in verse 15. What is this you have done? Now, Kevin DeYoung points out that this question is asked of God's people eight times in the book of Genesis. 
And the questions asked in relation to some kind of sin, asked by different people at different times to different people, and seven times out of the eight, the wrong answer or the, a bad response was made to that question. Now, you can listen to his sermon if you wish. It's well worth listening to. But I think it's worth uh, of a spending a little time summarizing his approach. Because when, when I'm tempted to, um, to give the wrong answer to, to sin, it's because I want to wriggle out of the issue. I, I don't want to face up to my sin. So what I do is I, I, I respond in, in a way that is not true and biblical and spiritual. I wonder, do you share my problem? Mazuth Azith. That's the Hebrew. Mazuth Azith. Now, it's not important to know much Hebrew, but I think it's a good wee phrase to remember. Mazuth Azith. What is this you have done? Seven wrong answers. Seven wrong responses. And then this is the eighth. The right one. And remember, if you know anything about numbers and in, in Hebrew culture, eight is the number of new creation or recreation. So it's very important. Let's think of the first one. Can anybody think of the first one? Probably the best known. Genesis 3, verse 13. God asks Eve, what is this you have done? Mazuth Asith. What have you done, Eve? And what did Eve respond? Well, she shifted the blame, didn't she? Um, she said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Shifting the blame. Human instinct, number one. Somebody else is to blame. It's not me. It's somebody else's fault. It's my DNA or it's my family background or it's my church or it's pressure or stress spend longer, but you understand the shifting of blame? That's number one response. Wrong response number one. Shifting the blame. The second is in chapter 4, verse 10. After Cain kills Abel, God comes to him and says, Mazuth Azif, what have you done? And what does he do? He says, ah, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He complains. It's not fair. You're not treating me well. I've had a hard time. Number three is chapter 12, verse 8. Abram lies about Sarai and says, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And Pharaoh asks the same question. Mazuth Asith, what have you done? And his response was to basically nothing. He just ignores the question. He shrugs his shoulders and he walks away. He leaves. No confession, no repentance. He just walks away. Mazuth Asith, you see the way this different people respond to the sin issue in different ways? Chapter 20, verse 9 is the next one, a similar story. Abimelech asks Abraham, in the same mold, you know, my wife is really my sister. And Abimelech asks Abraham, Masuth Asith, what have you done? And again, no confession. He simply rationalizes. He says, oh, you know what? There, there's, there's no fear of God in this place. That's why, you know, I, I did this. 
kind of as a godless place, so I act in a godly, a godless way. And and by the way, technically, you know, she is my half sister. So it wasn't really sin. It wasn't really a lie. In other words, human justification of sin, rationalizing sin away, taking the, the, the sting out of the sin issue. That's another way we deal with it. We rationalize our sin. Chapter 26, verse 10, Isaac does the same thing. The son of Abraham, the same old trick to another Abimelech, my wife is my sister trick, and his response was silence. Nothing. He goes silence. He kind of says, "Um, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not listening. I don't care. I hear you, but I'm not listening. How often do we respond to our sin in that kind of way? Chapter 29, verse 25, we're in the story of Laban and Jacob. Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Leah and not Rachel, and Jacob asks, Mazuth Asith, what have you done? What have you done to me? And what does Laban do? He makes excuses. Ah, you know, the local custom is that you marry the oldest daughter first, and and then maybe you can marry the the next one. Um, This is um, kind of a common approach in our culture. Um, This is our tradition. Everybody's doing it this way. You're going to have to do it this way. No confession, just excuses. Everybody's doing it this way. That's the way everybody lives now. Isn't that what we often, is that how we respond to our sin? Everybody's doing it. The seventh one is in chapter 31, verse 26. Jacob gets his revenge on Laban and takes his daughters and all his herds. And Laban catches up with him. And you remember what he says? Mezuthaseth, what have you done to me? And, well, Jacob responds by saying, um, you're a hard man. And I was scared of you. And I was scared that you would hurt me, that you would do me harm. Kind of a a, a counter accusation. I'm bad, but you're worse than me. You're worse than me. As a kind of, oh, I'm sinning. Yes, but boy, I'm not sinning as much as he is or she is or they are. Mazuth Asith. What have you done? Seven times God's people are asked this question, and they respond poorly, shifting the blame, complaining, walking away, rationalizing, going silent, making excuses, counter accusations. How do we respond when we sin? Oh, I see too much of me in that list. I see far too much of me in that list. And the reason why maybe we struggle with transformation is because we will not deal with the issue of sin in our lives in a proper way. The eighth time, of course, is the one that we're looking at. They own their sin. Chapter 44 and verse 15. What is this you have done? Verse 15, verse 16. God has uncovered your servants' guilt. They acknowledge their sin and their guilt, and they seek to put things right. Do you notice that there? Um, We are now your Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. We're guilty, and we want to put things right. 
We're guilty. We want to put things right. That's the proper response to our sin. And Joseph was beginning to see and to hear evidence that there was transformation. They could have abandoned Benjamin and sacrificed him for their own liberty. They could have walked away again and went home and told their dad another story about another son dying far away from home. But transformation for these guys had a high cost. The high cost was their freedom. But no, they wouldn't walk away this time. They were transformed and changed. God had uncovered their guilt and they were prepared to pay the price. Not just Benjamin, but all of them. In a sense, what they're saying there in verse 16, we sinned, we confess, we stand together, we share responsibility. Verse 17, uh, Joseph, again, still hidden, still, um, they don't know who it is. Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Let's stop here for a moment. Has the gospel transformed you? Or maybe you have lived a life and it's one or combination of these things. You've continually had this practice of shifting the blame to somebody else. You constantly complain, it's not fair what I have been given in my life. Why is it so hard for me when it's so easy for others? Maybe you simply ignore the issue, you shrug your shoulders and you walk away, you don't try to, maybe you stick your head in the sand, it's that kind of approach. Or maybe you rationalize it the way, so that's not really sin, because who's to say that this really is sin when, when it really is, but you're kind of rationalizing it? Or you just go into silent mode, or you make excuses, everybody's doing it. Or you kind of put the finger back at God and saying, or, or, or to, to others, you're to blame. We will never get to grips with transformation until we get to grips with the sin issue. And we've got to learn to say, God, I am a wretched sinner. And I need Christ to save me and to keep me. My sin offends you, holy God. My acts are acts of rebellion. And my acts of rebellion are barriers between me and you. And that's why I find you so far away. I struggle even to believe in you. I am not transformed because I have not dealt with my sin or brought it to you, the Savior. The gospel says, be transformed. Be forgiven. Very quickly, and just for a moment or two, the proof of all of this we see in the 18 to 34. Uh, Joseph waits. There's a part of me thinks, has he been a wee bit cruel here? He keeps on. We'll see next week that he, he reveals himself. Uh, he can't keep it back, but he, he's almost as if, um, 
I just want to see if this is all words. Is it just words? Because it's easy to say, you know what, I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched sinner. Um, I want to be transformed. God has found me out. It's easy to fake. It's easy to say the right things. So, so Judas stands before Joseph and he pleads that, that Ben, that Benjamin would be free to return to his father and he's willing to take his place. We see brave words, for example there, full of courage, verse 20. We have an aged father and, and there is a, a young son. Sorry, verse 18. Um, when Judah went up to him and said, please my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. There, there's courage <laughs> But there's also pity and compassion in verse 20. You know, he's thinking about his aged father uh, and the fact that Jacob's already lost his favorite son, number one, and now he's in danger of losing favorite son, number two. There's respect and there's honor as well. We see a lot of this in, in this long speech. By the way, verses 19 to 29, we don't really need to deal with that in great detail because it really is a, um, a retelling of the story of chapter 42 and 43. But uh, Benjamin, he's, Joseph's really saying, or Judah's really saying, Benjamin is here because you, Mr. Prime Minister, you, Mr. Joseph, insisted that he would come. Despite the fact we said that it would break his father's heart. And, and, and there's this acknowledgement of the great fear that Jacob had in verses 25 to 29. For instance, verse 29, we have time to look at that. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. In other words, this will kill me, says Jacob. And Joseph is told this by Judah. And verses 30 to 32, Judah says, I, I will bear the blame of Benjamin's loss. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. This statement proved that there had been a transformation in Judah's heart and in the boy's heart as well. Change had occurred. Because what do we see here? We see the small group of God's people under the leadership and headship of Jacob and the boys and their families were beginning to see them united in love. United in love. We've never seen that before. Love for their dad, old Jacob. Love for Benjamin, the youngest son. And in Judah's speech, proof of the transformation that we, we heard of, now we see it coming through, piled upon pile, evidence of repentance of their sin. Uh, evidence, by the way, that they had forgiven their dad of the sin of favoritism by, by loving Benjamin and Joseph more than them. That seems to have been dealt with. We also see evidence of intercession for Ben. Yeah, I keep calling him Ben. That's because in my notes. Benjamin. Intercession. 
they loved their dad so much and they loved his favorite son so much that they would not forsake Benjamin and leave him in Egypt. The transformation was clear. And the proof was equally clear. Because remember, these boys, and we saw it, we've seen it over the last number of weeks in the studies, there's a catalog of hatred, violence, jealousy, deception, murder, incest. And they were changed into gracious men who loved their dad and wanted to see their brother saved. And Joseph surely was impressed and pleased. But the cream on top of the cake surely comes in verse 33 and 34 when Judah says this. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that, I would, that would come upon my father. Judah steps forward and puts his own life on the line. He puts his neck on the chopping block. He offers himself to be a substitute. There's no play acting here. This is for real. I will pay the price for the good of my father and for the protection of my brother, even if it costs me my freedom, even if it costs my very life. So beautiful pictures are not of uh, deny self, take up the cross, and follow God's way. Jesus said this, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for another. Folks, tonight, you see, if we want to be involved in this process of transformation, we need a substitute, don't we? Someone to step into our place. The wages of sin is death. Every sin is punished. Either we are going to be punished or Jesus is punished as our substitute. It's either one way or the other. There's no, there's no third way. I, I say to you tonight, surely a gathering like this, you know this. I mean, you know this. You need a substitute. I mean, surely, I say to the a gathering like this tonight, surely you have received salvation. Surely the substitute has become your substitute. Surely you have saving faith in the better Judah, the older brother, the true older brother, Jesus himself, surely, surely you haven't got that wrong. Surely you've been transformed. And surely you're showing the evidence. If not, then I urge you to do business with the Lord be saved, transformed, and changed, and then live a life of showing the evidence. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. See, God is committed to my transformation 
your transformation, our transformation. That's his great plan. That's why, by the way, as soon as you're saved, he doesn't take you straight to heaven. He, he, he wants to see you, me, us transformed. He's committed to this transformation process. And we are to be committed to this transformation process. In a sense, we're duty-bound when we're saved. This is gospel ministry. This is grace-saturated living. And I suppose it's a bit like this. Confess, repent, be forgiven, live in grace. Repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. Confess, repent, be forgiven, live in grace. That's transformation. Joseph saw it in the boys, and next week we're going to see he then reveals himself. And the story takes another different direction. Come back for the next part as we see God working in the lives of his people. Lord, we long to see you uh, work in our lives and in our hearts and transformation and changing power and grace. Uh, you are committed to us and this work. May we be committed to you and your work in our lives. Lord, help us to be a people of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and grace. And then to keep repeating it until the day you call or come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.